0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, executive editor Nielsen Hobbs, and all the way from the UK, executive editor Ian Schofield. Today is September 9th, 2022. Like most of our listeners, we were saddened by the death of Queen Elizabeth and send our condolences to those in the UK and the Commonwealth. The big FDA news this week was the advisory committee meeting on Amelix's proposed ALS treatment AMX0035. It was the second time the committee has met has met on the drug. Sarah, you were one of the reporters we had listening to the meeting. Can you tell us what happened?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, like you mentioned, this was um, really unusual where this drug is got got a second advisory committee review on the same review cycle because they did these additional analyses to try and get enough. Um, you know, evidence to meet the substantial evidentiary standard. And um, so four committee members essentially flipped from their previous negative advisory committee and voted um, in favor of approval. And, um, you know, it seemed like there was a mix of things. People were somewhat persuaded by some of the new analyses of the trial that the drug is maybe more likely to be effective than they initially thought. But there was also a lot, I think, of um, changes in FOS because FDA made sort of a, a very strong case for how much flexibility and kind of deference, I guess, needs to be given in a case like ALS, where you have, you know, a very, very serious illness that kills people extremely swiftly. And there are... There are some available treatments, but, you know, they're they're not great and there's a lot of unmet need. Um, and Billy Dunn, who's the head of, you know, F- FDA's, you know, neuroscience division in the Office of New Drugs, gave, um, you know, about a 35-minute, you know, speech um, and introductory remarks kind of like, though he emphasized many, many times that, you know, FDA hasn't, you know, made a decision on approval. His... His the overall tone of his remarks seemed to sort of lay out an argument for why there is a lot of regulatory flexibility built into sort of FDA's regulations and the legal framework they have to follow that could lead you to a yes here, regardless of some of the questions even FDA itself has really acknowledged about how strong an efficacy signal there may really be here. And that seemed, and so he really he went through um, just all the flexibility FDA is expected to apply in the case of these sorts of diseases and drugs. And essentially, his big point was like that FDA, in this case, it means FDA has to be more tolerant of making a decision um, where they approve a drug that later turns out to be ineffective. They have to be sort of comfortable doing that and kind of less comfortable not approving it and then realizing down the road it was effective. So um, I think a lot of committee members were persuaded by that. You know, one um, quote that really struck me um, from a committee member who voted in favor, who um, voted no last time, was she said, um, let me just I just lost it. I had it for you guys here. You know, to deprive ALS patients of a drug that might work, it's probably not something I'll feel terribly comfortable with with my conscience. Um, And that was Liana Apostolova of Indiana University. And I think it's notable just because she she sort of kind of acknowledges, right, that, you know, people are voting for this drug and many of them are still not totally sold on it, on it working. Um, But people generally felt, sold on the safety side of things and they just felt like there was sort of this again this obligation to at least be willing to put it on the market for a certain amount of time Um, and that's probably something else i should have mentioned sooner is that sort of this sort of unique circumstance here is that there is an ongoing phase three clinical trial with the hope is that'll address some of the lingering questions about you know the efficacy and um so people's and FDA made a pretty strong pitch to to the committee, even though this is not an accelerated approval, which in the U.S. we're you know kind of used to and comfortable with. There that you know it's sort of a it's an approval that lets FDA you know approve a drug on sort of a different um, standard in terms of the type of clinical efficacy data, um, and then you know companies have to do the post-market studies, you know, prove there's actually the tr- true clinical benefit we were expecting, and then there's a process to pull products from the market if that doesn't pan out. Um, I think people are less aware, as Dumb was trying to point out, that, you know, for all approvals, there's always the ability for FDA to withdraw a product. If new data comes to light that, you know, shows it's actually not as effective as we thought it was it's actually not as safe as we thought it was the risk benefit balance has shifted and so he sort of made this pitch like look there's this phase 3 trial coming if if we decide today this is a good drug we can change our mind later and you, you shouldn't be worried about you know that to some degree and he actually asked the company to sort of like would they pledge to you know make that process easier if easy if that happened essentially would they voluntarily withdraw the product cuz and um, we know and Dunn, actually i thought to his credit he was he was very truthful about this if the company doesn't want to voluntarily withdraw it at that point if that phase 3 trial failed and the but the drug was already approved we know how burdensome that can be for fda from the accelerated approval experience that it can take years and just a ton of agency resources and so forth so um Yeah, I mean, this is just, I think this is one of those um, advisory committee meetings um, that I think people will be looking at um, for a long time. Well, outside of the ALS space, because FDA really sort of set out a lot of sort of fundamental things in terms of their thinking as to how they regulate and how they make approval decisions. Um, Because as much as during the COVID era, we've heard some prominent FDA leaders say, oh, we call balls and strikes, balls and strikes. This is a case where you really see how subjective and, you know, FDA decisions really can end up being um, when it's it's not a, a close call. Or an easy call i should say
0: yeah i don't think anyone's going to disagree that umpire calls especially on like you know the outside corner or even you know low low fastballs you know whether they're strikes or balls can probably depend on which way the wind is blowing <laughs> so so yeah I, I i agree that's a that you know it, it that's a, it's an interesting point there um but uh I, I guess the the big thing for me was the the company's pledge to pull the product. I mean, the, I, I don't know if is there anything? do we know if there's anything the agency can do to kind of short of saying, Well, you said you were going to pull it in the trial fail if the trial failed? I mean, is there anything else they can do? Can they you know, to kind of hold them to that, short of just putting out statements after statements saying, you said you would pull it. The trial failed. Why haven't you pulled it yet?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, to say definitively, I'd probably wanted to consult with some kind of FDA, you know, with an F, some FDA, you know, law, experts in the law there. But my hunch is that, you know, while it was nice to get the company on record here, things can change. And I don't know that FDA really would have any power to hold them to this statement, um, particularly because, again, we're going back to, you know, things are not always black and white in this regulatory space, right? So we, we might think there's a clear... You know black and white determination though the phase three is either successful or it's not but we you know yeah. as, as, as as close followers of fda and clinical trials and so forth there's there's sometimes cases right where it's on the borderline what if it's a, what if they get a statistically significant result but most people don't think that's clinically relevant right yeah mm-hmm. um what if they don't hit the endpoint, but it's trending positive, you know, like you can see cases where the company and the FDA might have a different interpretation of whether that study is successful. Um, also one of the, you've got a bunch
0: of patients that come out and say, it's helping me look, I can, you know, I, my symptoms are, are going away or I'm, you know, I'm still able to walk or, you know, I'm still ambulatory or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to the, the broad data that shows that it's, you know, not trending in the same direction.
1: Right. And I mean, one of the advisory committee members um, um, also pointed out, you know, like CEOs change, right? You know, leadership of companies change. What if Amlex gets bought by another company? You know, what obligation does do they have to, you know, um, hold up, you know, the, the CEO's remarks in this advisory committee meeting? So, you know, I think it's relevant and it's, I mean, we've seen actually with FDA's um, recent effort to kind of relook at some of the cancer drugs approved under accelerated approval, that there certainly have been cases where companies have voluntarily withdrawn and not, you know, made a huge, you know, hubbub about it and so forth. But um, we also know that, you know, in accelerated approval, there's been cases like the ongoing drama with McKenna, where they, you know, have not been easily willing to withdraw um, despite failed study results. and it takes years for Fda to to work on that. So um it is a little bit hard to know how much credit to place in that. I mean, part of me just still wonders like how um how off the fly that moment was for the company, right? And whether there was any conversation about this with FDA beforehand and so forth, because obviously script was very, um, Dunn's remarks were, seemed very scripted, you know, that he was reading a prepared speech. I don't think he, you know, so I, and I just wonder whether there's been any other sort of discussion between the company and FDA about this prior to this meeting, um, or did, something as well.
0: I mean, did, did he like pause when he, and ask and wait for the company to answer or did they, or what, had did that how No, did that he, happen? he did,
1: he didn't, what happened was that was, pretty a lot that was towards the end of his remarks and you know then then the meeting was supposed to move on to the um company presentation and before like the more prepared presentation started you know where they sh- introduce all the data and clinical trial results and so forth um the CEO sort of stepped in and took the mic and made those comments of course you know one of these things about virtual meetings right um Particularly, this one compared to say, like I've watched a lot of the vaccine advisory committee meetings lately, where people tend are on camera when they're speaking. Nobody was on camera, (laughs) so like you you didn't see like you couldn't see like facial expressions. You know, I mean, they're certainly not all in the same room, but like, you know. uh, Sometimes you like, I don't know, like, I just feel like there might be things we lost to there, and like that this would have looked differently, <laughs> or you might have yeah, had different thoughts a about, yeah. right? Like, if they were all sitting in the same room, like, and this was asked, or you know, would we have seen, you know, Amlex executives like whispering to each other, yeah, you know, to figure out what they were gonna do or not, or um, so yeah, that I that was something else that sort of came to mind to me, like, how this would have just like felt in a you know non-virtual format where you could actually see people talking and see them interacting in the same room in a little bit different way
2: well sarah i was uh, reading your story i was struck by uh potential parallels between uh um uh, billy dunn and uh, richard pastor uh you know the head of uh, fda's uh, oncology shop uh um you know uh you know pastor is for sort of kind of a uh, um, uh, an eager user of uh, expedited pathways for kind of, uh, you know, accelerated approval most of all, which is not sort of kind of what's in, uh, in question here. But, uh, you know, the Center for Oncology Excellence uh, develops, uh, you know, a lot of sort of new uh, um, new ways to get products out uh, faster. But he's also, as you noted uh, too, uh, you know, famous for sort of, kind of holding companies to account and, you uh, know, can be uh, um you know fairly aggressive uh, during uh, advisory committees at uh, um, you know sort of kind of uh, dressing down uh, um, uh, sponsors that he thinks doesn't haven't uh, performed adequately enough uh, um so uh, do you think we're sort of seeing the emergence of a new uh, um, a new dynamo if you will uh, um, at FDA, in terms of, sort of someone who can, uh, you know, sort of both, uh, you know, move products uh, uh, onto the market quickly, but sort of kind of uh, also has a reputation for uh, um, uh, being tough with uh, companies when uh, um, when the when the need arises.
1: I think the tough part is probably something right. We have to wait to be seen with Dunn. Sure. I'm not aware sure. of any circumstances mm-hmm. yet where he's had to make those sort of harder calls that we might think of Pazder having made, um, you know, I think we'll see what happens with if they approve this drug again. He was pretty clear at multiple points, like they're not, they haven't made the the decision yet to approve the drug. And there are certainly things in FDA's preview documents and in this advisory committee where you sort of, you you felt like you were getting conflicting messages a bit at times, like they don't seem Bryce totally sold that they met the substantial evidence standard. And yet they seem like they're really trying hard to find a way to say they did. Um, But I think if they do approve it, we'll see what happens in a few years. We'll see what happens with, you know, the follow-up studies from aducanumab, the Alzheimer's drug that Dunn was, you know, involved in approving. And, you know, I think people feel like there was even less clarity there that this will turn out, that it will turn out to be an effective drug. So, I think we'll certainly have situations in the next, you know, maybe f- three to five years where we might be able to kind of evaluate how, you know, much he sticks to that commitment of kind of following through if, you know, FDA makes a decision that later turns out to be, you know, have not been the right one.
0: You also could see, I mean, what we saw with the tap- with uh, Serepta's DMD drug, where the the <clears throat> there was the internal disagreement between the reviewers and and in some of the the more senior staff and well Janet Woodcock and you know it had to be you know they had to do the dispute resolution process. I mean, you wonder if I mean if, if the the advisory committee or the the briefing documents were as you know pretty negative, and now we're you know and then you get a speech that you know, an advisory committee opinion that's more positive if, you know, you wonder if there, you know, that conflict is kind of still kind of brewing within the agency among among some people.
2: Tempersons is an interesting example, uh, Derek, because that's a situation in which the confirmatory trial, uh, I think, has been long delayed. And so it's not uh, yeah. um, exactly a situation in which, uh, you know, they were flexibly sort of, kind of uh, let into the market and then sort of kind of uh, given a fairly tight leash in terms of uh, uh, being held responsible for gathering the uh, necessary uh, backup data, so uh, um, it'll be interesting to see sort of how this all uh, plays out.
0: Yeah, it's going to be yeah definitely an extraordinary meeting, and you know one we're going to have to watch to see if you know if the, if this kind of sentiment continues to uh, you know to influence decisions going forward. Next up is an interesting look at clinical trials in Russia and the impact of the war in Ukraine. Ian, you looked at this for us. What did you find out?
3: Well, I, this was um, a very interesting study, which was published by ACTO, which is the um, association representing clinical trial associations in Russia. That some um, multinationals carry out clinical trials, and also um, that some of the major CROs, um, ACTO does. Uh, a half-yearly report on clinical trial activity in in Russia and it's normally a fairly sober, interesting read with lots of detail. This time it's quite quite a different kettle of fish. Um, ACTO is saying that following the um, war in Ukraine with all the international disruption that's caused and the sanctions on Russian companies and um, corporations being encouraged to leave Russia, um, clinical trials there have fallen into the abyss um, they, they're they saying that the country's um, image has sharply deteriorated um, and that this is the beginning of the end for international trials in Russia. Now, that might be overstated in the long run, but certainly in the near term um, that that is being borne out. Um, Acto says that in the first half of this year, there was a, um, almost a 30% fall in the number of approvals for international multi-country clinical trials in Russia, um, while the number of approvals issued to foreign sponsors for, for Russian trials fell as well. Although interestingly, approvals for bioequivalent studies went up because obviously these are these are a lot more easy to carry out uh, at the local level and are not really part of international clinical trials. Um, the, this really became apparent from about March because of the, the, the two or three months that it takes um, between application to conduct a trial and the approval being granted. So it was only really March, April that they started to see these effects. And by May, um, the pitch was was clearly showing a, a huge decline in, in sponsor activity in Russia, um, and with ACTO saying that the pitch was likely to get worse for the foreseeable future. Um, what is, what is happening in Russia is that, um, generally ongoing trials are being continued. Obviously, you know, they have an obligation to the patients to keep those trials going, but, um, most companies have stopped recruitment or, and have, have have put on hold any new trials. The one company that's gone the furthest apparently is Bristol Myers Squibb, which has shut down the whole of its clinical trial business in Russia. So it's, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a very, gloomy picture for cl- clinical trialists there, and, and particularly for patients who have been involved in trials. Um, we, and we well, according to um, ACTO, um, at least half of new international trial proposals were put on hold as of the end of July this year, and will no longer take place in Russia. Now, big question here is where are these trials going to go? Um, We've read a lot of reports about what might happen. There are suggestions that the the trial arms might be shifted to other markets in Europe, uh, North America, Latin America, that kind of uh, thing but um, Akto was saying also there seems to be a bit of a movement towards shifting trials to more neighbouring countries. Um, For example, in the former former Soviet republics such as Georgia and also maybe some of the um, countries that are part of the Eurasian Economic um, Union. Uh, also, that they they seem to have detected some shift to Middle East markets and um, countries in North North Africa as well, which are a little bit further away. So it's it's hard to hard to get a grasp on exactly where the trials may be shifting to, uh, as it's probably still early days to find out. But uh, it's it's certainly a phenomenon that's been noticed by um, by the, the the Russian trial organisation. Another interesting part of this this whole story is something that we've reported on before as well is what happens to clinical trials in Ukraine. Obviously, at the beginning of the war, the whole country was disrupted, uh, all clinical trial activity was pretty much uh, put on hold, and the there was a lot of um, scrambling by um international regulators to issue guidelines as to how companies should move patients from Ukraine to other markets if indeed those clinical trials had arms in, in, in neighboring countries. Um, now that's that's a whole whole different ballgame. Um, a, a lot of problems associated with, with moving patients um, particularly in in, a, in a, a conflict zone for example where, where do you where, where do they move to where are these trials being carried out what are the regulatory and logistical issues involved in in moving patients and what about the patients themselves if, if they do they want to be uprooted from their homes uh, are they uh, are their families coming with them or staying there so it's it's been a, a really confused situation um it's uh Looking at the actual number of, you, uh, of trials in Ukraine, it's thought there were about um, 500 trials on average each year um, with about involving about 250 drugs and devices, but obviously many of uh, sponsors have, pour, have paused their trials in, in Ukraine in the meantime. Um, one thing that ACTO did point out was that even though Ukraine has been hit hard by the conflict in terms of clinical trial activity. It's in a very good position to recover once the hostilities are over. Um, Because unlike Russia, um, it hasn't got the the sanctions imposed. Its international uh, image hasn't deteriorated. And it'll just be a question of of trying to re-establish those trials. And indeed, um, according to the ACTO report, things are already picking up in in Ukraine i guess particularly in the countries away from the the east and the south where most of the fighting is at the moment uh, over in in the in the west of the country um clinical trials uh, clinical trials probably continued um to some extent during the conflict but certainly now it seems according to local consultancies that the the trial activity is really picking up um one one issue that uh, is 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 a bit of a worry is um whether a lot of clinical trial staff may have left ukraine for other countries and started working there and whether they'll they'll be able to or be be willing to return to ukraine after the hostilities allow um so that they can get the clinical trial sector back up and running as it more or less as uh, possibly more, uh, more or less as it was before so yeah, there's there's a whole load of um, variables here. So it's something that we'll be sort of keeping an eye on very closely.
0: Yeah, it's, <clears throat> the 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 part you were mentioning about you know what, will they go back to Ukraine or when will they come back to Ukraine? I'm I'm curious if you know if, if you move out of you know all these places or or these clinical trial these sponsors are moving out of Russia because it's such a uh, a huge lift to pick up what you've got going and move it somewhere else, you know, will they, you know, is there, is there a sense of that, the, you know, they'll want to go back to Russia at, at some point? I mean, is there, is there a way to entice them back? I guess, you know, maybe the the better question, you know?
3: Yeah. Do you mean the, the, the staff or the, the, the companies?
0: The probably both, yeah you know, is there a way to, you know, can they do it? Will they want to do it?
3: Well, they want to do it. I think is probably the uh, the biggest thing. Um, it all depends on how this all ends up, and whether and for how long the sanctions remain on Russia. Because obviously, the sanctions is one of the, the biggest limiting points. The the other one is is the more practical one. You say is if they've pulled out, and they've maybe taken their trials elsewhere. Um, how do, how do they then reestablish those trials um, and as part of their international trial program? it's it'd be very very difficult not only logistically but i guess also on the regulatory side as well um but yeah uh it, that remains to be seen whether whether they will actually want to pick up their trials again in russia or whether the the, the it will be somehow transferred to uh, local russian companies uh, um I don't know how that would work if if the companies may have got um local subsidiaries that might be able to pick that up or whether it would be purely domestic companies that uh, try and take on these trials but certainly it will I think change the the whole face of of the sector in in Russia another another thing we're thinking about as well is the and, and the regulators earlier this year took took this up is the the or, or the regulatory issues involved in transferring patients um, or trialists um to other countries um, for, for example, there's logistics of moving uh, IMPs across borders uh, and the impacts on the patients and their families um, and on the regulatory side you have to think about um, the deviations that this causes to clinical trial protocols where, where if, if they do uh, attempt to move patients from one arm of a trial to another, particularly across the national borders to countries such as Poland and Slovakia, where I believe a lot of Ukrainian patients have been transferred. And one interesting thing that came up, and I think that we reported on earlier this year, is that the this has shown the need for flexible trial designs that uh, make it easier to um, transfer patients from one trial site to another, particularly, again, over, over national borders.
0: Yeah, it's a, you know, but an interesting thing that you know, kind of like when the pandemic started, there are all these all these logistical issues that all of a sudden had to be kind of fixed on the fly that no one really thought about before. So, it this sounds kind of like a, a similar a similar issue that you know we kind of had to everyone kind of has to deal with you know that really they never really thought about before.
3: Well, certainly, I mean, both 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 of these things are pretty much out of the blue, um, and and certainly on the in the on the COVID front, the the amount of regulatory uh, changes that have been in, in, introduced over you know, in such a short time as well to show us you know what can be done when everybody realizes something needs to be done and it's it's for the benef- benefit of everybody and i think that applies also here with um with with um with the war um it was just it was realized early on that you know people would have to act very quickly to try and get answers to this but it's uh, whereas um with 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 covid it was uh, a worldwide phenomenon and the regulators could work together uh, in forums like the um, international Co- uh, coalition of regulatory authorities to agree changes that could be uh, flexibilities in regulatory procedures to deal with this kind of thing here in ukraine russia they're, they're dealing with a, a war situation as well which you know which brings inevitable uh, additional complications uh, of um not not only to do with regulation but also to do with you know the people who are involved in the trials and whether they're going to be kept safe. and how?
2: Yeah, the regulatory changes that uh, Covid has uh, wrought uh, may end up uh, saving pharma companies uh, uh, money and you know letting trials uh, be be faster, you know, sort of the remote trials. and uh, all of the other reforms that sort of were kind of were implemented on the fly, as you were saying, sort of, mm. you know, there is a lot of uh, um, uh, hope that sort of that kind of becomes uh, more routine and that could sort of, you know, um, lead to faster enrollment and, uh, um, uh, you know, broader availability of uh, studies. Uh, On the other hand, however, all these, uh, um, you know, uh, adjustments uh, forced uh, by the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, um, you know, probably will end up being more expensive for – um, pharma just because they, you know, they, they limit the options in terms of sort of kind of where uh, um, a company uh, wants to put its trial, you know, they may uh, in the future sort of of weigh political instability uh, more as they think about sort of kind of the uh, future location of sort of kind of, uh, you know, anywhere around the globe in terms of, sort of where they might be studying. So uh, um, that could, uh, um, you know, uh, eventually sort of slow uh, studies down even if, uh, um, even not the ones that were, uh, you know, directly disrupted by uh, by this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's um, there's so much to
3: think about there. I think one um, aspect about this, uh, the regulatory flexibilities, as I mentioned earlier, um, has, you know, the, the the idea of having uh, more flexible recruitment rules um, might have been ha- highlighted by the the war in Ukraine, um, and not, and generally on the. On the flexibilities introduced under uh, for COVID, particularly um, as you mentioned, you know, it, it, some of these do make it easier for uh, they allow different kinds of trial design. They they allow faster uh, assessments, such as uh, the rolling reviews. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the you know, some um, health activists have raised the issue that you you don't while pharmaceutical companies might might want these flexibilities to continue. Uh, um, it it might not be a good idea to take them too far and to start broadening into um, products outside of emergency situations, which um, some activists believe might lead to um, excessive relaxation of of regulatory rules.
0: Yes, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, this likely won't be the only impact of the war, you know, in Ukraine that's good that that farm is going to have to deal with. But, um, you know, maybe this is maybe Mm -hmm. an unforeseen one Mm -hmm. (laughs) so far. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ian, for joining us and and for giving us the scoop on that. I really, you know, really appreciate it. It's a really interesting, uh, really interesting topic. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Finally, today we're going to take a look at another aspect of Medicare price negotiations. Our colleague Mike McCann wrote an interesting piece about whether HHS can negotiate prices in a credible way while also avoiding accusations of political influence. Republicans wrote a letter to HHS asking it to set price floors, take patient input into account, and consider other policies when creating the negotiation system. HHS likely will be under pressure to ensure the negotiations are fruitful, i.e. save the government substantial amounts of money. But how will people respond if HHS gets a 50% discount for one drug but only a 40% discount for another? It's an interesting dilemma. McCann suggests there might be some pushback if the government gains less of a discount for one drug, maybe one that's widely used in Medicare compared to others. So I'm curious what uh, what you all think of this. Do you is is there going to be a lot of scrutiny and complaining if you know we don't get, we don't do as well as with the negotiations as some people think we should?
1: Uh, Yes, I I think there's gonna be, (laughs) right. I mean, I think this is gonna be a politically charged process Um, and and, and thinking back to what I was talking about earlier in the podcast about, you know, FDA approval decisions. And I think there's a desire among some people to think about just a a lot of their decision-making as black and white and the reality is, Oftentimes they're not black and white decisions. They're really difficult calls and involve some degree of you know value judgments and so forth that not everybody would make exactly in the same way, right? So, um you know, I think here they are going to be, you know, they're they're not going to be able to operate in an environment where they're insulated from, you know, as Mike pointed out in this story, patient groups that, you know, have you know, a certain, feel like there's a certain tension around how price and access, you know, intersect and um, tensions from the different political parties who may, you know, have different opinions about how much of a discount drug should get or one drug should get over the other. And of course, you know, there's going to be situations too, where what leverage the government has is going to be different, right? For, depending on which drug it's working on negotiating and what the, you know, the field of, you know, looks like in terms of other treatments out there and so forth. So um i I mean, i I envision this being, you know, something that, you know, is fairly controversial <laughs> at times. and you know they're they're probably never going to be able to satisfy everybody perfectly,
0: yeah, but my, my my problem with this is that everybody can Monday morning quarterback something like this, right? Right? So, you know, everyone, I mean, you know, you, you know, they come out and say, we got a 50% discount. And the first, you know, you know, there's going to be people that say, well, I could have got a 55% discount, or I should, you should have gotten a 99% discount, you know, I mean, something, something like that. I mean, but you wonder, you know, you got to wonder, I guess, how far will, will people, you know, stakeholders take this? I mean, will, will, is there going to be a congressional hearing every time they negotiate something that somebody doesn't like? Are they going to, have an annual hearing, saying, you know, and and rake people over the coals because, you know, it's like, well, you negotiated forty percent. You know, if you had done forty five, we wouldn't have this uh, this deficit or that deficit, or we could have paid for this or that or the other thing. I mean, you you, you know, I guess you just, you know, and and then really, how do you answer a question like that if you're a negotiator? Do you just you know sort of saying. If you think you can do better, you know, you can feel free to negotiate it for for us if you want.
1: I guess maybe Mm -hmm. some of it will come down to like whether they can create some sort of consistency and rules of the road amid, again, situations that are right, not black and white, but can they sort of create a system where people can kind of evaluate whether they're treating each drug and situation sort of. Similarly relative to the others, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And yeah. then, you know, that should hopefully, again, insulate them maybe from some scrutiny. So, right, it's not maybe people, everybody has sort of different value judgments of exactly how they design, you know, the proper pricing for these products, but if at least they're, they're using the same value framework, and I don't mean value in the way sometimes you use it am talking about drugs, but if they're using the same framework for every product and can kind of show they're trying to be con- consistent, I think that helps them, um, you know, and you'd be more likely to get a lot of scrutiny if there was uh, any, you know, suggestion of sort of foul play in the sense that, you know, the government was giving a better deal to one company or product over another because of you know for a reason that couldn't be justified <laughs> you know maybe the company had donated to you know I don't know you know the pre- the president's party and powers can you know I think things like that like would create more issues so like if they if they can sort of create a way to somehow be consistent within the realm of right like that These there's no way, you know, you can ever come to a price, I think, where everybody can agree this the concept that there is sort of a, you know, one price a drug should cost is just I don't think ever going to, you know, work.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Can you take the subjectivity out of the entire process, kind of like robotic umpires? You know, can you take out of calling balls and strikes? (laughs) Can you can you make it so? A bu- strike is a strike every in every game all the time, you know.
1: <laughs> right, but it's like sort of like dealing with there. There is the subjectivity, but can they at least sort of apply it consistently or something? Or something, right? You're never going to get it to be a mathematical equation, but can you at least like apply that subjectivity fairly? I guess across a range of products.
0: Yeah, that I guess that's my my big question is how do you how do you get around the you know. I had I was I had a headache that day when we and I just you know I I had to go home sick so I just signed the agreement at thirty five percent instead and we could have gotten forty, you know I I don't know.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Although I think uh, you know they've they've, uh, clearly tried to structure this law in a way that's uh, going to uh, prevent this, but uh, in other countries the biggest uh, criticism seems to be when a. uh, you know, a government payer and a sponsor who can't agree on a price and the, the drug does not come to market uh, um, at all or comes to market uh, um, late that, uh, you know, given how they've uh, uh, tried to uh, um, design the um, negotiation, if you will, uh, process here, that doesn't seem to be as much of a, uh, an issue. But I think uh, um, if, uh, you know, uh, examples of other sort of kind of uh, uh, countries with a, uh, um you know, government uh, price setting or, uh, um, or any indication. The uh, the most criticism could be on the uh, um, the side of actions as opposed to uh, um, spending. But uh, obviously, it's sort of kind of the. Uh, um, it seems like every every drug is getting a sweetheart deal that will be uh, become an issue for uh, spending criticism as uh, as well.
0: Yeah, I guess that's the other question: is you know, will there be you know, if 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 it something like that happens here, where they you know they just they go on for months and months and months and and just can't reach an agreement. I mean, you know, are they going to be, what are the hearings for that going to be like? Are they going to, well, you know, c- could they come back and order them to say, take this price and, you know, this is a, we'll pass a law saying, take this one.
1: Well, I mean, I think <laughs> the law sort of tries to avoid that situation because there's the um, the minimum discount and then there's the um, penalties. on. There's There's such strong sort of negative repercussions for companies that don't engage in the negotiation process and at least agree to that discount. Um, the the thought is that few companies would, you know, not at least settle at that minimum discount with HHS. I think that's sort of was a key thing in how that law was crafted to sort of try and ensure drug, these drugs are available to Medicare, pay, pay, any drug selected for negotiation is available to Medicare patients at at least a minimum discount because and you know, that's why previous, I think um, versions of drug price negotiation that has been put forward were seen as sort of less politically popular or feasible because those usually involved formularies to get to cost saving. and then you get this the flag waving of but people are going to lose access. and that oftentimes, um, loses a lot of support for them. So I think there was a lot of c- things that were very carefully um, crafted here to avoid that problem.
0: Yeah, more interesting drama in Capitol Hill to come, I suppose. But you know, that's nothing new, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Ian Schofield, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.